verses 1 through 44 from the English Standard Version of God's Word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them after con concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he may die, yet shall live. And everyone who lives and dies, or, I'm sorry, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she said this, she went and met and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the, Jew, when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to Jesus and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, and I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Then he, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet un 
bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Thank you for your word. We thank you that as we read and hear the story read this morning that we know that this is not just a fairy tale, something that was made up, something that was inserted into the historical record uh, to lead us astray, God, but we know this is your word, and we know that through the historical evidence, but we also know it through our own experience, God, that this is just powerful, and your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, as you say, and it just has something amazing about its strength and its ability to cut through our hearts, and God, I pray that today as we look at this amazing story that you will allow it to move our hearts closer to you, Jesus. I pray that you will help those who are down, those who are discouraged, those who feel like that maybe this isn't work for them. God, help them to see and and put their eyes upon you, Jesus, and find their hope and their life and eternal life in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, Jennifer, for reading that. Uh, You guys would know if I had to read all that, that would be a bad thing, right? And so I appreciate her uh, coming up here. Uh, one of the most amazing innovations, I think, for me personally over the last 10 years or so, or so has been the GPS. The GPS uh, is really great for several reasons, and some of y'all that are so young, you don't remember this. Um, holding a map while you drive was pretty challenging, all right? So you may remember those days, some of you, those maps would open up and they'd be so massive and huge, and then they got the little book, which made it a little bit easier. But a lost art is following signs. And MIT researchers say that we're actually, we're getting dumber, all right? It's true, we're getting dumber because we don't have to pay attention and watch for signs. We just do what it says and follow the directions. Well, if you look at the book of John, as we've worked our way through this, there's actually been, this is the seventh sign that John is recorded, the seventh miracle, John calls them signs, in the Gospel of John for one reason alone. That's to point us to Jesus and his power, and his authority, and his greatness. Jesus is the king. And this seventh sign, and and some of the other gospels record multiple miracles, John has seven. And this is the most amazing, most spectacular of all the seven miracles that Jesus performed, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And not only is this on its own account just an amazing story, it's also foreshadowing the greatest event of all time, the resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus, he performs this, this sign, as all his signs, to point to his divinity, his greatness, who he is. He is God. So to catch you up to speed, if you missed a few weeks here and there, chapter 10, Jesus left Jerusalem because the Jews were trying to kill him. They were going to stone him. He goes across the Jordan River, and there he begins to minister. And after this amazing miracle that Jesus performs here in Bethany, the Jews begin to actually take the initiative to put a plan into place for Jesus to be killed. All right, they were done. The Sanhedrin decides that Jesus, there's only one option, he has to go. He's leading the people astray. He's claiming to be God. He's performing these miracles by the power of Satan in their mind, and so he has to get off the scene. He has to go. So if we go to verse 1, and we'll walk through this, and we're going to actually cover this entire text, this entire event of Lazarus in two weeks And we're going to look at various things from this week and then various things from next week. But we won't be working through it verse by verse like we normally do. We're going to look at the verses, but we're going to do it in a little different order through kind of a a couple of different themes. So verse 1, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, 
the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So he's in the village. Mary and Martha are familiar with Jesus. Many of you know the story of Mary and Martha. You know who they are. It's recorded in Luke, and it's a great story if you don't know that from Luke chapter 10. But we don't learn they have a brother until this account here today. And in fact, Mary and Martha appear to have a very close relationship with Jesus because of verse 3, they send a note to him. Let's look at verse 2 and 3. It was Mary who had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So interestingly, John has not actually got to the story about Mary anointing Jesus' feet with oil. It's in the future. It's in chapter 12. But John presupposes that the readers have some knowledge of what's going on here, more than likely because they have the other Gospels. They're reading the other Gospels, and they know the account. Most of them know the account. So the sisters, verse 3, send the note to him. So they know him. They're aware of him. They know his power. They say to him, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, of course, Jesus loves everyone. In fact, if you remember, John refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loves. And it's interesting. Everybody who comes in contact with Jesus, I'm sure, felt like Jesus' love was so amazing that they felt like they were very special, right? They felt like, wow, Jesus really loves me. And he does. And obviously, Jesus did have closer relationships with some people than he did, did others. But I think it's telling that he, it, it, he's, Jesus loved him, all right? And Lord, the one you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And interesting, he loved them. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, what did he do? He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Really? All right. So I love Lazarus, right? Oh, he's sick. He's really, he's dying. He's, he's in bad shape. Oh, I'm not going to hurry to get there, right? I'm going I'm to take my time getting there. He, he's so sick that I'm going to take a few days, in fact, to get there. And the disciples, of course, were totally perplexed by Jesus' decision here. Why would he not hurry and go to where Lazarus was to heal him? Because God's ways are higher than our ways. Jesus knows what he's doing. This isn't just going to catch him by surprise. God's sovereignty, his control over the events of nature and our health, he knows and he points out to his disciples, this illness does not lead to death, right? We know Lazarus dies, right? We just heard the account read. We know the story. But what Jesus is saying is it doesn't end in death. It goes, it's going to go through death, but it's not going to end in death because verse 4 said it's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through this. So the purpose of Lazarus' sickness is so that Jesus can be glorified. Jesus can be lifted up. So Jesus loves Lazarus, but he's going to allow him to suffer, and he's going to allow Mary and Martha and the family to suffer and for Lazarus to die. So Jesus loves us. There's no question about it. When Jesus says he loves us, it means he loves us, and he cares for us, and he truly, truly wants what's best for us. But sadly, what our thoughts of what is best for us are not always what's best for Jesus and his kingdom and what are ultimately best for us from his standpoint. And so Jesus is about Jesus and God's will first and foremost, not about our agenda. And we get that turned around so many times. Some of you, most of you probably remember 10, 12 years ago, the movie Brothers Keeper that came to town and they made the movie here. 
And it was interesting. Many people went and signed up to be extras for the movie. A few people got into certain scenes and shots. A couple of people got speaking parts. But some of you, you waited and you spent much time and much energy to go on the set and patiently wait for your turn to be on camera. And then when you saw the final edit of the film, you were nowhere to be seen, right? You're pointing out, that's me behind that guy, right? That's kind of obscured there. And it's like, whoa, all that work for nothing, right? And sometimes we can see ourselves in the story of life and the story that God is writing. We see ourselves as like, we need prominence. We need like a central role in this thing. We need to, it to be about us because we're pretty important, right? We think we are. It's, it's about us. But in God's economy, that's not the way it works. And sometimes God calls us to be the extra who never really gets the limelight and never gets on screen. How many of you, raise your hand, literally raise your hand if you've ever heard the name Edward Kimball before. Have, has anybody ever heard of Edward Kimball? All right, I don't see any hands going up. Edward Kimball. This was the guy who taught a Bible study class that was attended by a guy named D.L. Moody. If you know the name D.L. Moody, raise your hand. Come on, raise your hand if you've heard D.L. Moody, all right? All right, most hands being up. He went to Moody's place of employment, a shoe store, and as Moody was working in the storeroom, the stock room, he shared the love of Jesus with Moody, and Moody put his faith in Jesus and devoted his life to the cause of Christ. Edward Kimball had a role to play, and he fulfilled that role. And we don't know his name today. Now we do, but we didn't know his name before. And you'll forget it after this illustration today in the sermon. But the impact that D.L. Moody made upon the world was incredible and the number of people who came to him. So Jesus loves us, and knowing that Jesus loves us gives us this incredible significance and value that's literally beyond our comprehension. But live existence in history are what God wants to do for his glory, to glorify himself through the redemption of his people, the judgment of sin, and the making of all things new through Jesus Christ. His story for his glory, all right? If there's anything you want to take away from today and this story, it's his story for his glory, your story for his glory. Because what happens, God allows suffering to come into our lives. He does. And not only, let me go a step further. Not only does God allow suffering, let's, let's get Mary and Martha and Lazarus' perspective here. God ordained suffering. He ordained that Mary and Martha would suffer the loss of Lazarus and feel like that there was no hope. Lazarus was gone. They would not see him again until eternity. So they suffered because God allowed it for the glory of Jesus Christ. And usually... When we suffer, we never truly see the why behind it. God can give us some glimpses at times of why we're going through something, but sometimes it's never made clear, perfectly clear for sure on this earth. Sometimes it does. Sometimes we get a little taste of why God did what he did. I've used this illustration before many times, but I think about my brother Mark who was killed in China serving as a missionary. And it's easy to look at that situation because Chinese people don't convert to Jesus very easily, all right? It's not about some countries where people are quick to make professions of faith. You can spend a lifetime in China, and they're so hardened atheists that many will not turn to Christ, although there is a work being done there. But when my brother was there over 25 years ago, it wasn't the case. Many, t many of the people that he dealt with and worked with had never heard of Christianity and Jesus. 
And when he, when he wrote in his diary and the things that we read, nobody had turned to Jesus. But yet, I don't have time to read it today, but I have an account of a story that happened after his death where they begin to talk about Mark and about what happened in the plane crash that happened there in China. And, and the person recording this blog said that many Chinese students turned to Jesus as a result of Mark's mission work and ultimately his death. What a story. And what a, what a blessing to be able to see a little bit of the why behind why he was killed. But most of the time, we don't know why we're suffering. We don't know why things happen and what the purpose is for the kingdom. And, and I, I mentioned this resource the other day in my Monday email, and it's such a good resource I wanted to highlight today. And I have four of these back on the book cart. This is 31 Days Toward Trusting God by Jerry Bridges, one of my favorite books, Trusting God, the full-length book, Trusting God. But this is an abbreviated and changed-up uh, version of that book, broken up over very easy, bite-sized devotionals. And if you're struggling with life, if you're struggling with God's purpose and what he's doing, his sovereignty and how this thing fits together, 31 days toward trusting God, okay? 31 days toward trusting God. I encourage you to pick up one of these. If we run out, I, gave, I put the link to it in the app if you would like to buy it. Jerry Bridges passed away a few years back, but one of the best authors, just Christ-centered, Scripture-centered. You won't regret reading that book. I gave it to someone sitting in here uh, some months ago, and it was a big encouragement to her, she said. And so she endorses it, even though I didn't ask for her endorsement. But she endorses it, and it's a very, very good book. So trusting God, even when things don't make sense. And then number three, always interpret your suffering by God's love. Don't interpret his love by your suffering. That's huge. Don't interpret your suffering by God's love. Interpret his love by your suffering. Don't interpret your love by, his love by your suffering. And so as we're in the midst of it, it feels like God doesn't love us. It feels like the world's coming down on us, and God, why do you hate me and despise me so much? But always interpret your suffering that God does love you. You're his child. He's called you for his purpose. So Jesus loves Lazarus, but he didn't run to help. He loves Mary and Martha, but he let them suffer. Verse 7. Then after this, after two days, he said to his disciples, okay, let's go to Judea again. Why did Jesus delay? Well, we just read it was for his glory, but let's look at this a little deeper. There's more happening here than you may, not, may realize. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, to his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant to rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, which he had to do a lot for his disciples, Lazarus is dead, all right? He, he's dead. So Jesus supernaturally knew that Lazarus had died. And notice throughout this passage, as we read it and we saw it read, that the timing of the situation is emphasized over and over again. Look at verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days, all right? So the passage, John is making sure we realize What's going on here, all right? That Lazarus is gone. I mean, he's in the tomb. As the King James Version says, he stinketh at this point, all right? He's not smelling so good. He's decomposing. So two full days had passed between the arrival of the messenger to tell Jesus about Lazarus being sick. Then so Jesus waits two days. He departs to Bethany. The trip to Bethany would have taken at least a day 
since Bethany was more than 20 miles away. So, so if you follow the timeline here, the death of Lazarus had to have occurred shortly after Jesus was told about Lazarus' illness. So the point is, even if Jesus had heard immediately that Lazarus is ill, and he and the disciples started headed toward Bethany to, to heal Lazarus, Lazarus would have still been dead by the time he got there, all right? Still dead. So the point, the, the question is, why did Jesus wait two days? If he was going to be dead anyway, why did he wait two days before he went to see him? I don't think we need to go into great detail what a four-year-old corpse would smell like, but the, the stink of the word is a pretty good word, right? During this time, there was no embalming procedure that would be anywhere near the standard we have, and it would be only the wealthy that, that would be, had the luxury of having a true embalming procedure. And so bodies were typically buried very quickly within 24 hours. Now, our culture, we tend to hide death, all right? In those time periods, death wasn't hidden like it is. Even in the early American history, death, people encountered death much more often. I remember the story of uh, Webster, the guy who was the composer of the dictionary. Like, how many, I think he had like 12 or 13 siblings, and like seven of them died when they were infants because just the, the land was so tough and the weather was so tough on the frontier. And, and so death was a common thing that people would experience. But in our culture, we hide death, right? We, we remove that. And so many people have never witnessed a person actually expiring or dying. And it's difficult. I know this from experience. It's difficult to tell if a person is actually finished breathing or not if they're, once they expire. Once they're gone, are they breathing or not. I was in the, the room with someone recently, and the nurse could not detect whether there was shallow breathing going on or the breathing had ceased. And during this time period, there, it was documented that people would actually be, be carrying in their caskets to their gravesite, and they would be resuscitated. This is documented in history. And so why am I saying all this? It led to this superstition that existed among the rabbis at this point in time, where as 17th century British theologian John Lightfoot points out that he says that they believe that grief, grief reached its height on the third day, but for three days, the spirit actually hovers over the tomb and it makes it possible for the body to return. But when decomp uh, decomposition sets in, then the spirit departs, okay? So you get the picture here. There's this feeling, there's this way of thinking, the superstition that existed at the time of Jesus that three days, maybe that spirit's still hovering, maybe there's a chance that that person could come back to life. So what was Jesus' purpose for waiting? It was clear. He wanted this miracle to be irrefutable. He wanted it to where nobody could say, well, Lazarus was dead, but wasn't fully dead. He was only mostly dead, right? His spirit was still hovering, so we're not really sure there's a difference between mostly dead and dead, right? No, Jesus wanted to be clear that it was an absolute fact that Lazarus was dead and gone, and he smelled terrible, and it was clear that he was not coming back to life on his own. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and what does he tell the disciples? And it's for your sake, he says to the disciples, it's for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Why? So that you're going to believe. Believe what? What does Jesus want them to believe? Jesus directs the attention now to himself. Get the picture, okay? Lazarus is dead. And Jesus begins to make it all about him, right? Who does that? Who would do that? Jesus would do that. Why? Verse 18 through 21. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. 
And many of the disciples, I'm sorry, many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met Jesus, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Is she rebuking Jesus? We don't really know the tone of how she said that, but she knows that Jesus had the authority and the power to heal sickness. She had seen it, she had observed it, she had heard about it, she knew that he could heal. But she said, if only, Jesus, if you could have been here, he, he would have made it. What about you? Is there some of those if onlys in your life right now? Honestly, if only God, you did this, then we wouldn't be in this mess. God, if only you would have stepped in, then this would not have happened. And like Martha questioning God, Jesus, if you'd have come through on the way that I felt like you should have come through, we wouldn't be in this predicament. And Jesus is going to tell Martha, hold on, it's not the end of the story, because it's my story. Verse 22, look what Martha says. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. That's good, right? But I would agree with commentator Edward Klink, who says this. He says, by using generic God language as she stands before God the Son, Martha reveals an inadequate understanding of Jesus. And so, yeah, whatever you ask of God, God can do it. At this point, we're going to see clearly at verse 39, but we can also see it in verses 22 and 23, she does not even fathom the fact that Jesus could raise Lazarus from the dead. She doesn't think that Jesus is capable of doing that, apparently. Verse 23, Jesus flat out says, your brother will rise again. Again, we see a lack of anticipation for what Jesus can do. She knows Jesus is powerful. She knows he's a miracle worker, but she doesn't seem to hold out any hope that Jesus can do what he's about to do. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. So Jesus says, your brother's going to rise. Martha, like a good Jew, she knows that the resurrection's going to happen. She knows her theology. She knows her stuff. She knows that the resurrection will happen and the dead will rise again one day. But she doesn't realize in her theology that the theos of theology, theology, the study of God, the theos is standing right in front of her. That God himself, the one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who created life and sustains life and sustains the universe by the power of his word, is standing right in front of her. And she says, I know that resurrection will happen. God will do that in the last days. And Jesus is saying, I'm God. And I'm standing in front of you, and I can do whatever I want to do. She won't need to wait till the last day to see Lazarus again. She'll just need to wait a few minutes, and Jesus is literally going to blow her mind and blow the people's mind. And so Jesus, at this time of suffering, this time of grief, he doesn't say, Martha, let me just hold on to you for a minute, and let's just grieve this moment for a second. What does Jesus do? Who would do, be able to say, Martha, here's what I want you to do in this moment, I want you to look at me and see who I am. I want you to look at me and see who I am. Look what he says. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? So Jesus, at this moment, this incredible, grief-filled, emotional moment, he says, it's about me. Do you believe it, Martha? Do you believe it's about me? You may have remembered C.S. Lewis's whole liar, lunatic, and Lord scenario. I want you to think about it that in this, in this situation. I, I put it up on the screen for you, kind of, you may recall that you got to deal with Jesus as being either Lord, a liar, or a lunatic here, all right? If Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and you're like, nope, that's, that can't be true, that's a false claim, then Jesus either knew that he was misleading to people, so he's a liar, or Jesus was just crazy, all right? Jesus was crazy to say this stuff, and he's a lunatic. So I'm, I'm asking us, I'm asking you to deal with that for a second in your mind. If Jesus is making these incredible claims to be the resurrection and the life, is Jesus strong enough to get you through what you're going through? Is Jesus able to bring glory to himself through your situation, through your life, through your marriage, through your children and what's going on in their life? If Jesus is Lord, and if he's the resurrection and the life, and Jesus, his claim is true, then he's God. And that's who you say that you trust and put your faith in. So can you not trust him for that? If you can trust him for your eternal life, Jesus says, you can trust me for your life right here. I'm working, and you don't get it. I'm too big for your mind. I'm too big for you to see. And you don't understand that what you're going through right now, I have a plan and I have a purpose and I have a will. And, and here you are, you're trying to, as we all do, we're trying to put ourselves in the center and say, all right, it doesn't feel like you're doing anything good for me, God. And God says, hold on a second. Remember, you're the extra who doesn't even get on film. But I'm working this for my glory and it's gonna be for your good and you'll see it. If not in this life, you'll see it in eternal life. You may not figure it out here, but you have to trust me because I claim to be Lord. I rose from the dead. Am I a lo the Lord? Am I the liar or am I a lunatic? Which one am I? Well, you're Lord. Okay, trust me. Trust me in this moment. And our faith grows as we experience these suffering moments because we see Jesus for who he is and we trust him for who he claims to be, for his glory not our own. So the most unloving thing that Jesus could have done in this situation was to point Martha to anything other than himself. Only he could be what she needed at that moment in, in all of her life. And many people want to think that God's love is about making much of them, but God's love is about making much of himself. And we have to constantly remind ourselves of that. And that's why Jesus didn't show up to heal Lazarus and that's why maybe you feel like he hasn't shown up in your situation as well. And so Jesus says to her in verse 25 again, I am the resurrection and the life. Interesting what he does there. He points to the future and he points to the present. And you got this, this tension. He says, I'm both. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Jesus does more, get this, he does more than offer her life. He says, I am the life. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And that's hard to wrap our minds around. I heard this illustration by commentator D.A. Carson. I thought it was really good. He says that um, back in the early days, before fast food restaurants were everywhere in America, he said KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, was one of the most prominent uh, fast food restaurants. And he says that everywhere, at that point, everywhere were pictures of Colonel Sanders and talk of his finger-licking good secret recipe. All right, so you had Colonel Sanders, his picture everywhere, it's still on the signs today, and you had his, he, him claiming he had the secret recipe. And although we don't know that Colonel Sanders actually ever said this, it would make perfect sense to, in our minds if Colonel Sanders, because he's so closely connected to the brand, the brand is so much about him that he would say, I am Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? We wouldn't be shocked by him saying, I'm Kentucky Fried Chicken, right? But obviously, that Colonel Sanders could not literally be a chicken. He couldn't be a Kentucky Fried Chicken. And so when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, that's kind of a good parallel to understand that. He's saying that it has to flow through me. I am. It's all about me. It's about who I am. And you can't separate eternal life and you can't separate out this life without me. Because you can't separate the fact that death has no power or authority over me because I'm the resurrection. Death will not have the last word. And so trust me on this, Martha, and us trust him on it. I'm the resurrection. Though, And he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. One day our bodies will be resurrected. Martha's theology was right. One day we will be resurrected and no longer have to live under the power of death. But that's not just in the future because Jesus says, not only I'm the resurrection, he says, I am the life. And he said, concerning our, our relationship with God, he says, it passes through me. It must come through me. You, never die, you will never die spiritually if you connect to me, if you're in relationship with me, because I'm the pathway to God. And he said this in John, we'll see it in John chapter 17. He says, and this is eternal life that you may know me. All right, if you want, to, you want eternal life, he says that you, you may know me, the true God, the only son, Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. So Jesus is eternal life, and Jesus reconciles us to God, and this is eternal life. And so that's why we don't hold out just simply hope for some mansion in the sky one day, and that's where we build our hope completely. Our hope is built on Jesus Christ, our foundation for the here and now. He's our life now because we have peace with God. God is for us, not against us. And we can live knowing that he's working all things for our good and his glory, even if it doesn't make sense, even if we don't see it in the moment. And we may not ever see it in this lifetime. We trust because he is the life. He's the resurrection and he's the life. So Martha, now when she hears Jesus say this, she displays a personal confidence in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. Verse 27, Jesus said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She understands that Jesus is not just some prophet or miracle worker or good teacher. She understands now that he is the Messiah. He's the Messiah. But you're going to see in this passage 
she still doesn't grasp fully what Jesus is going to do in this moment, and maybe even doesn't really fully understand what he's capable of doing. And, and that's a good place to kind of step back and think about our own sanctification, our own journey to be more like Jesus Christ in our life. That we know a lot of things, and we, we're spending time with Jesus, and we're in relationship with him, but we haven't arrived yet. Nobody has. Nobody's arrived yet. We're all in process. And in those moments where you have that, that time where you lose your temper, or like the guy in the video a couple weeks ago, you're under your breath, you're saying horrible things, and your attitude's terrible, and you've had those moments this week. You know you have. I've had them. You've had them. You know I have not arrived yet. i got to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of my faith. Because left to myself, I'm going to bring a lot of destruction and pain into my life unnecessarily. And so Martha hasn't clearly grasped what Jesus can do. We'll see that in a second. Verse 38, skip down to verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, here she is, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. All right, so this is the Martha who just recognized him as the Messiah, who now still like, what are you doing, Jesus? All right, it's not going to be a pleasant picture here when you open that thing up and Lazarus is there. There. So she hasn't arrived, but she's, she's growing. She's getting it more and more. And then Jesus shows his unity with the Father, verse 40 through 42. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, have heard me, right? Past tense. Jesus isn't dependent upon God to pull through for him, right? God's going to do it because Jesus is God. God heard him. I know that, you're al- that you always hear me, but I said this on account of who? The people standing around. Why? The whole purpose of the book of John, that they may believe that you have sent me. So Jesus is praying and preaching a sermon here at the same time. And then Jesus gives us a preview of the end of history with the resurrection of Lazarus. Verse 43 When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And many a commentator has said that if Jesus hadn't used Lazarus' name here and just said come out, that everybody would have come out of the tombs because that's the power authority of Jesus. We don't know if that would really happen or not, but that's an interesting thing to think about. Verse 44, the man who had died, Lazarus came out. His hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. You know what we get here? This story is not only a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the life of, uh, and, and death of Christ, but it also shows us that we're in the middle of this history, God's history, his story. And because of sin, there's going to be death and suffering and pain. It's, it's going to be the case. But it's not the end of his story. The end of the story of Lazarus is a preview to the end of history where Jesus shows up. And what does Jesus do? The dead raise again. Weeping and tears are forever wiped away. And they were replaced with God's eternal rejoicing, glorifying the Son, glorifying Jesus for all of eternity. That's the preview of the story. 
that pain and suffering and death are real and it's painful. But God, we trust you. We put our hope and our faith in Jesus, who is the resurrection, and he's my life. And I trust him fully and completely. And in those moments where I struggle to trust him, I remember his truth, his story. It's about him, it's not about me. And I trust that he's doing something for his glory. And I know that God has created me to be a part of this story. I believe that. He adopted me into his family. He's called me to worship him, to serve him, to live for him, and to live this life in a way that's different than our world and our society. Will you grasp that today, the head, his story for his glory? Your life, but his story. You're a player in his story for his glory, not your glory. But he's invited you in to that story. And that story, we don't know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next year, but we know how the story ends, that he's victorious. And as a result of that, we can celebrate and we can have hope in this moment because Jesus is greater. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this amazing sign, this miracle that you you did that just is beyond comprehension of the people who were standing there and the, beyond our comprehension today, if we're really honest, that you could bring the dead back to life. And God, I pray that you'll help us to remember that you bring the dead back to life every day through trust in Jesus Christ, through trust in Jesus that the dead are brought back. There will be no final say that death will not have the final victory. And that's why we can say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Because our lives will live forever in eternity with you. And help us to live on that hope, even in this moment. And Father, as we take the Lord's Supper to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, as we take the bread to remember your body that was brutally, brutally broken and crucified, and the suffering that you went through for the joy that was set before you, Help us to remember that when we suffer, that you suffered. And is the disciple greater than his master? Of course not. And God, I pray that in those moments we'll remember Jesus. As we take the wafer today, we'll remember the sacrifice that you made. And as we drink the juice, we'll remember your blood that was poured out so that we can have peace with you, God. And we can have eternal life with you. And we can join you in your story and live for your glory.